African Americans are the fastest growing vegan demographic. About 8% of African Americans are plant-based, vegan, vegetarian, uh, as compared to 3% overall. This is not surprising to me because of the way that I learned about veganism 33 years ago when I entered into this community. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. And today on the Exam Room, we're going to be taking a look at another side of nutrition, the social justice component of it. Why is it that some races, some communities, have greater access to high-quality food while others are left to fend for themselves in what are known as food deserts? The situation is this. Here in the U.S., among African Americans, the rate of obesity is nearly 10% higher than whites and a jaw-dropping 34% higher than among Asian Americans. Why is this happening? What is going on? To get those answers, we're going to turn to Tracy McWhorter. You might know her as the Ageless Vegan. She's here today to shed some light on those disparities. Why there's this enormous nutritional divide when the African-American community is actually the fastest growing demographic among vegans. That's what we're going to be learning about today. It's a really, really eye-opening conversation. And Tracy's going to be telling us about her new campaign, 10,000 Black Vegan Women. And then we're going to hear from a legend in journalism who is on a journey of his own. A lifetime of unhealthy habits had been catching up to Corlin Malloy. And right off the bat, during our conversation, you'll hear him talk about being shaken just moved by a video of himself that he saw where he was walking. You will hear him say, it was like an old man. A really old man. But now, thanks to a change in diet, he's no longer shuffling around like a 90-year-old. He's as spry as any young guy out there, and he's lost a ton of weight, he's feeling great, and he's ready to inspire others with his incredible story. So he's here along with his health Sherpa, if that's what you want to call her, Gwen Whitaker. She's the one who got him started on this journey and continues to be a great source of information and inspiration for him as he keeps going. It's a great story, a fun story, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, let's see if we can't reach 10,000 black vegan women with Tracy McWhorter. As we continue here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, I'm really excited about this next segment. It is one that I've really wanted to do for a very, very long time, and now I feel like I have found the perfect guest 
to bring all of this to the forefront. It is indeed a very, very important issue, one that does not get discussed nearly enough. And so with that, we welcome to the program a public health nutritionist and author and a friend of mine, I will say, Tracy McWhorter. Welcome to the exam room. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. It's been, what, a couple of years mm-hmm. since you and your mom were on the show? About two years. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Since our our book tour. Yeah. yeah. And that was a fun segment. Yeah, the ageless mm-hmm. vegan. Yeah. 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 And might I say, you look younger than the last time you were here. Oh, so do you. Thank you. <laughs> it's the makeup. Uh, how is exactly. your mom doing, by the way? She's doing great. That's She's awesome. doing great. Yes. Yeah. I told her you said hello. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Uh, y- your mom is a pistol. Like, I love her. Like, she just has so much energy. That she was, does. Yeah. Oh, more than her three daughters, that's for sure. <laughs> Y'all find it hard yeah. to keep up? Yes. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll actually put up a link um, in the episode notes below to our previous interview. And if you're hearing this, I highly encourage you to invest another 15 or 20 minutes. Go back and listen to this conversation. And I'm telling you, uh, you will laugh, you'll be inspired, and uh, you're going to be feeling younger just by listening to the Ageless Vegans. But we're not here to talk about ageless veganism mm-hmm. today. We're here to talk about what I would say is actually a more important issue. You are embarking on a campaign called 10,000 Black Vegan Women. Talk to us a little bit about what this program is. Yeah, so 10,000 Black Vegan Women is a movement. It's a program that I came up with to celebrate the 10th anniversary of my first book, which is called By Any Greens Necessary. And that was the... (laughs) And that was the first vegan diet book for black women that came out in 2010 um, and helped thousands of of folks go vegan um, over the last decade, which I'm really proud about. And so for the 10th anniversary, I wanted to commemorate that and do something even bigger. And so um, I came up with the idea of helping 10,000 black women go vegan in one year, something big and bold and necessary. Um, And so that's really how this came about. And um, if folks are interested in going vegan and finding out more about it, um, I welcome them to come join us, come join the movement and and come go vegan with us this year. I'm I'm excited about this. And uh, you've been kind of rolling this out here on the month uh, during the month of February for mm-hmm. Black History Month um, and we're going to get into some very interesting history here <laughs> shortly uh, you and I were talking before we started rolling and yeah. I, I honestly wish that we were rolling tape on there because you took me to school and I'm, I'm really hoping that, that that's um, where yeah, we're going to go absolutely. again here um, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong uh, the African American community is actually the fastest growing mm-hmm demographic for vegan diets. That's right. You probably saw the article and a lot of your listeners and viewers as well that came out in the Washington Post just a couple of weeks ago saying that um, African Americans are the fastest growing vegan demographic. About 8% of African Americans are plant-based, vegan, vegetarian, uh, as compared to 3% overall. Wow. Um, Right. But this number, so that's... That is um, what the latest Pew study says. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a Gallup poll that was also mentioned that that shows that more people of color are vegan and eating plant-based than um, everyone else. This is not surprising to me because of the way that I learned about veganism 33 years ago when I entered into this community. Here's that history part. You ready to go (laughs) to school? Here we go. Here we go. So I was... um, 
you know, I went to college at Amherst College in Massachusetts. And my sophomore year, a black student union brought Dick Gregory to campus. And we brought him to talk about the state of black America. Instead, he talked about the plate of black America and why we should go vegetarian. At that time, vegetarian was the umbrella term, right? Mm -hmm. But he meant vegan. And we didn't know that he had been vegan at that point in 1986 for about 20 years. Wow. Because of the practice of nonviolence during the civil rights movement. He was a right-hand person to Dr. King, and he extended the philosophy of nonviolence to animals, right? Became vegetarian first, and then uh, in 65, and then 68, I'm sorry, and then 67 became uh, vegan, so at this point in 86, he's going around talking about veganism on college campuses really everywhere. And uh, so that talk really rocks my world because up until that point, I really didn't know about food. I didn't know about food and its relationship to social justice, its relationship to health, um, its relationship to so many issues. And uh, I was a really unhealthy eater. Not interested in, in healthy food, despite my mother's best efforts. <laughs> so I took my my uh, sophomore year away. The, the following year, I went to Kenya for the first semester. The second semester, I came back to D.C. and went to Howard. And when I was walking back and forth to school, I discovered that there was this large black vegan community right up the street from Howard. And so um, I was floored by this because, you know, this is literally in my backyard. And they had the very first 100% vegan establishments in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital, mm. period. And there were 12 of them at that time um, in the 80s. And, in fact, at Howard University, there was a vegan food truck that had been there since at least the 1970s. Oh, hold on. I thought food trucks were a relatively new phenomenon mm -hmm. as well. He had been there since the 70s. He okay. was, Yeah. And, and what's also interesting is that... Um, it wasn't just that it was this community by Howard, but there were other um, health food stores and community gardens, right, of folks who were um, promoting veganism and who were themselves vegan and vegetarian. So there was um, Soul Vegetarian that was started by the African Hebrew Israelites, and they had up until recently the largest vegan chain of restaurants in the world, 14 locations. Mm. Um, there were uh, Nation of Islam bakeries. There were folks who were part of the civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, who tie social justice, health, and religion to the food that they ate. So they were starting their own establishments because they didn't exist in the city. So um, this, is, this is the community that I learned how to be vegan and vegetarian in, right? So after this lecture from Dick Gregory, I came home and you know, I'm immersing myself and my mother, too, in this community, and we're learning how to cook, how to make it delicious, affordable, the history of it. Um, and so I say that because, you know, it's important to start with the positive and the affirmative mm -hmm. and to say that there has always there has always been a, a big river of black folks who have been pioneering veganism and plant-based food in the movement next to this wider ocean of black folks who are omnivores and, and you know, hopefully will be eating um, healthier food with, as part of this movement. But um, we've always done it and we've always been leaders. And it's important to talk about that and for people to know that's that's I I enter veganism through black culture. Right. Right. And so um, this is just this is just something that is not that is. Um, I share all the time because people assume that it's not that case, that, mm. that, 
that it's a white thing, you know, um, or that this is uh, this is we do these things in opposition to or in reaction to when, in fact, we're pioneers in this. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of people would say that the same thing can be said of the music industry and so much of a part of the entertainment <laughs> industry. Of course. I mean, yeah, just yeah. Google Elvis and African-American and you'll be like astounded by the things that you see. Yeah. Um, but I want to ask you about the point in time when you're being immersed in this because mm-hmm. – you know, in any culture, recipes are just passed down by generation yeah. to generation. Mm-hmm. Were you concerned that the foods that you had grown up uh, eating, like, were no longer going to be on the menu? Or were you learning ways to eat these things now just mm-hmm. using plant-based ingredients? Exactly. It was this, So, like, Soul Vegetarian is the example. is the largest vegan chain of restaurants in the world. They were taking soul food and making it vegan, right? Um, so... I was a college student at the time, so I really wasn't cooking for myself Mm -hmm. at that point. I was, what, 19, 20 years old? So I'm learning, and this is years before the Internet, so I was physically going to cooking classes. I was going to lectures and learning how to do these things and, um, you know, learning where to shop in D.C. So... My learning to, you know, becoming an adult and learning how to cook for myself, how to provide for myself, I fortunately went vegan at that time. So my learning how to do that for myself was through veganism. Now, I'm, I'm, my mother um, was divorced, and I have two older sisters, so we, I can't remember ever not cooking. So right. I already knew how to cook right, omnivore right. food. But now, for myself, getting ready to be out on my own as an adult, I'm learning how to do it in a vegan way. So I have been vegan all of my adult life. Gotcha. So this is, you know, my, my foundation it's for the you, last yeah. 33 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So you're in that community. At, at what point did you then start to discover, you know, these other pockets of veganism mm-hmm. and, you know, get involved in, in other aspects, you know? Right. Yeah. Because and, now, clearly, it's not just limited to this little sect in, in D.C. anymore. Right. Exactly. And so, um, I mean, you know, back then it was it was it was, you know, that community had such an influence on the city that when there were political rallies, you know, whatever the war du jour was, and there was organization going going on, political rallies and things like that, um, there was always vegan food served. When there were festivals, you know, D.C. is known for free festivals, yes, you know, yes. in the summer, <laughs> spring and summer, there were always vegan food trucks. Like, you did not have to bring your food, you know wow. what I mean? So it, so it permeated the entire city. Um, even though it was not a big community compared to the rest of the city. You know, the influence was felt all over. Um, so when I, um, when I went back, to, uh, when I went back to, to college, you know, I went back the next year for my senior year. Um, that's a whole other story that I write about in my degree. <laughs> that, having to be vegan on my own and cook for myself. But when I came back to D.C., um, I had a whole other profession as a museum director, but during my spare time, I was teaching cooking classes, vegan cooking classes, going around talking. And I started to look for other organizations that were doing this work. So I discovered the Vegetarian Society of D.C. Um, later on in the 90s, Compassion Over Killing. You know, I, I worked here at PCRM as a public policy liaison for uh, two years, 99 to 2000, before I went to grad school. Um, so, yes, 
I definitely was um, was led to start, seek out other organizations and become involved and, and active. Okay. Yeah. We've got the foundation. Yeah. All right. So we've got that. Now let's talk about the why. Okay. Because this is this is super important. Yeah. Um, what I know from my time as a reporter and what has since been solidified um, in my time now with the Physicians Committee is that in D.C., where the city is broken out into what they call eight different wards, mm-hmm. the health disparities mm-hmm. between the most affluent wards mm-hmm. and the most underserved, underprivileged wards is staggering. I mm-hmm. mean, jaw-dropping. Mm-hmm. You're talking about rates of colon cancer, diabetes, like you name it. They are through the roof, you know, say in Ward 8. Mm-hmm. But then you come over here mm-hmm. and it's like almost non-existent. Right. Why because it's that? affluence. You know, this is a, this system, the food system, um, like every other system, you know, that you can that you can name is uh, is based on white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and the people who are most exploited by that are people of color particularly black people particularly black women right so you have impoverishment um you have few resources so wherever there is you know when when there is a system like that food is going to be affected just like any other system the education system the political system um housing it's the same with food and so ward eight you have the highest uh, group of folks who have uh, who are low income, mm-hmm. right? And so that is going to determine um, what is available to them in terms of what they can buy and what is available available to them to buy, right? Whether their grocery store is there. Um, I mean, it's by design. It's not. There's no surprise. But I also want to say that um, you know, this community that I was talking about at, near Howard in Northwest, that was a low-income black community mm-hmm. in Northwest. Mm-hmm. So we have been doing these things in low-income black communities. But um, also, fast food companies in the 1970s began to target African-American cities, African-American communities and urban areas. Um, before that, African-Americans whose... Um, uh, we're just, you know, we were our, our, we were from, you know, coming up from the South, right? So we were, um, after enslavement, growing our own food. And we actually were eating more plants, more fruits and vegetables than uh, white folks were up through the 1960s. Even when we moved into cities, we brought this kind of agrarian style food with us. My mother, for example, grew up in Camden, um, South Carolina. She says that they rarely had meat during the week. It was a Sunday thing. You know, they didn't have a lot of money. And this is this was common. Right. They grew their own vegetables. They had wild berries. Her aunt had an orchard. I mean, uh, fruits and vegetables, grains were the primary foods that folks ate because for economic reasons. Right. 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 So um, when we started to when we came to the cities in these low income urban areas, this is when we were targeted in the 70s by fast food. I mean, it was by design that they put these um, fast food places in these low income places rather rather than in the suburbs. So we were targeted. And, you know, as this is the result of that, you know, I mean, it's also personal choice, of course. But, you know, we have to understand the systems that are in place that make this so. Right. Well, 
okay, let's have a let's have a real discussion. Uh, yeah. Because sitting over here as a white man who has never considered himself to be a white supremacist by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> it's the system. It, well, okay. It, well, help me understand the system. Help the listeners understand the system. Because when you say that, like I'm over here, I'm like feeling both a little bit confused and embarrassed by it. Like, what am I doing to contribute to this that I have no idea? I'm mm. even doing. Like, hel- whole... Help me understand here a little bit. Can you break that down? I can't break that down in like five seconds. <laughs> That's a whole other. I mean, you know, understanding. You understand that this system is set up for white men, and, and that's how this country was established, right? Correct. What has changed? How has that changed? Anything that people of color primarily, and, and, you know, with me talking about black folks, anything that we have gotten, any laws and amendments we had to fight for, right? Touche. Right. For sure. It doesn't, it did not change on its own. And this is, and, the, and the, this is, I guess I can't explain it in five seconds. Uh, I know, right? You, you just can't. You just can't. I mean, this is this is but a whole this, other episode for a yeah. whole other podcast, really. Yeah. But I mean, so th- that's the deal. Right. Yeah. Um, food deserts are a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I know is that food deserts exist in primarily underserved mm-hmm. areas. Um, I was just out in Arizona. And you want to talk about poverty. I mean, yeah. it is poverty the likes of which you, you could not believe on some of these Native American reservations. True. I mean, yes. I, I mean, I was told stories of people having to organize bus trips just to go to a grocery store. Mm. I mean, they have these, these areas that are the sizes of, of an entire state. Mm-hmm. But there are only two or three regular grocery mm-hmm. stores. And so, it's tragic. It's right, tragic. Right. Yeah. Right. So this isn't the African-American community. But again, you, you're talking about a community that you say was set That's up to a, fail. It's exactly. the same daggone thing. Mm-hmm. So they're forced to shop out of gas stations and convenience stores, mm-hmm. which, you know, you're looking at healthy foods. I mean, those are in short demand or short supply out That's there. That's right. But there's plenty of junk food to, to go around. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Right. I mean, this is. This is why this is an issue of impoverishment as well, you know, across the board in this country. And it is it's tragic. It should not be. It should not. This should not exist. And, um, you know, it's important to talk about that impoverishment and and all of the communities affected by that. It's important to talk about the workers who work in factory farms who are exploited. It's important to talk about people who are immigrants, who are picking the food that we the fruits and vegetables that we're promoting. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's a there's a whole system in place, um, a food system that needs to be changed, that needs to be improved. Um, so there, there are definitely layers to this. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's bring it back to the African-American community here. Um, let's talk specifically uh, about, you know, the the traditional diet, uh, the soul food diet, uh, of the African-American community. Higher in calories, uh, a lot of, um, fried food, correct? It's a, it's a Cajun food. Okay. It's a Cajun food. So like whatever, so like. Um, soul food is, you know, is African-American cuisine, great cuisine, right? right? right. Uh, uh, innovative cuisine. Um, and it is something that is eaten during celebrations mainly. So family reunions, graduations, birthdays, weddings, funerals, all of that. But, you know, folks are not having macaroni and cheese and fried chicken and uh, biscuits and you know cornbread and collard greens and potato salad every day. This is not everyday food. You okay. know what I'm saying. So that 
this is this is occasion food right, right, right. like every other culture has occasion food right and they turn out all the stops and it's going to in those when you have that it's going to be higher in fat salt and sugar mm-hmm. right um, and it's going to taste good. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it no is. Doubt about that. No question. As, you know, and then, but then there's also, you know, the fact that we're, we are addicted to fat, salt, and sugar, right? So yeah. that's why it tastes good, too. But um, so you, so yes, it's a traditional cuisine, but it's not everyday cuisine. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Let's talk about then. So the obesity rate, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it's it's an epidemic across the board. Is the obesity rate higher? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people, yes, it is definitely higher and and particularly um, among African-American women. And I actually, I mean, obesity is, you know, is a a medical term, but I actually just say unhealthy weight because just because you're thin doesn't mean you're healthy, doesn't mean you don't have high blood pressure or diabetes or, you know, heart disease. So I talk about the healthiness the healthfulness of the weight. Um, so when it comes to unhealthy weight, um, African-American uh, women have the worst uh, experiences with that. Mm-hmm. Um, 50% obese, 80% overweight. And so that contributes t- directly to higher rates of chronic disease, particularly diabetes. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And, mm-hmm. and is that... Uh, you know the byproduct. I'm assuming the the obesity rate is the byproduct of the food de- deserts, the social injustices we've been talking yeah, about, the yeah. lack of access to quality foods, all, all of, that. of that, and and comfort. You know, personal choices, but also uh, comfort eating. You know, dealing with there's there's stress, right? There's we're dealing with a lot of uh, stress from a lot of um, a lot of reasons, societal reasons, personal reasons, family reasons, um, and. Uh, you know, comf- eating is a is a source of comfort for everyone across the board. But mm-hmm. I think also this society has um, promoted this notion of overweight black women as acceptable, right? Um, and um, and then so there is so there is that issue, and then there is you know um, there is this notion of uh, thickness, right, and curviness. In African American communities, which is great, um, but when it becomes unhealthy, then that's an issue, right? right. Yeah. Uh, I guess my my question then would become: I, I mean, is this acceptance and pushing of a larger frame being more accepted? Because I I don't want to fat shame anybody. That's being exactly a former right. being a former fat guy, I know what fat shaming is, mm. and it sucks. Yes. And it is one of the most hurtful things you will ever experience. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's necessarily limited to one race at this point, because no. you you see larger and larger clothes and workout gear being targeted toward you know the the overweight people in this country. And why wouldn't they do that when now we're at a point where two-thirds of this country is overweight. And among the African-American community, specifically African-American women, that number is even higher. Exactly. Um, but this is an example of that. These issues are exacerbated, right? Right, right. Um, and so, yes, we are definitely, as a society, dealing with unhealthy weight, overweight, obesity, and it is much worse in in, um, in African-American communities and black women in particular. Um, and there's also the, something called oxidative stress, right? Okay. And oxidative stress, as I'm sure you know, it's, it 
can be caused by external and internal factors. And oh, yeah. it's basically premature rusting of the cells, right? So um, you can be stressed from um, things that you're eating. You can also be stressed from um, things that you're dealing with. It, you can, it can be racism. It can be sexism. It can be classism. It can be, you know, anything that's chronic and systematic mm-hmm. and systemic, mm-hmm. right? Um, that can that can wear you down. Right, right. And we know um, that that is one of the co- one of the reasons that African American women have higher mortality, infant mortality rates, um, and it and it plays. It's a factor in food as well. Um, it's a factor in um, what we eat, and it's a fact. It's a factor in um, how much we eat to deal with these issues. Because you know. Uh, Overeating is not seen as uh, problematic as doing other things, right? Right. Because everybody overeats. Yeah. Yeah. If For whatever reason, food is just – it's viewed differently. Yeah. Even though it can be just as detrimental as any vice exactly. out there. Exactly. Any vice out there. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons. Yeah. There, there, and, I'm, and I'm glad that we're talking about it. There are lots of reasons. But the, but the for me, the bottom line is most – Deaths, most most disability and death among African Americans, um, our diet re- can be prevented with a healthy diet. Gotcha. Right? right, and so that is the part that we can take back. We can take back control of of it all. People are resisting and organizing, and always have been. Right on. Um, and while doing that, we must take care of ourselves, and we must eat healthier. It's crucial. Well, let's let's talk about eating healthier. How you know, eight uh, percent you said of mm-hmm. African Americans are now vegetarian or vegan. Mm-hmm. Astounding number. Mm-hmm. Is there this openness and acceptance of it, or are a lot of people still just kind of like they have their wall up and they're going to eat the way that they're going to eat, and they don't want to hear anything about this? Ooh, plant based this, plant based that. Like, <laughs> well, you oh. know, you experience that. It's some oh, of yeah. both. But I think that, I mean, it's still, you know, it's still not a huge number, right? Right. Um, but part of, part of it is um, younger people, you know, the fastest growth is among young people. And I understand that. I started, you know, I was introduced to it when I was in college. Mm-hmm. So um, my mother starting in her 50s is kind of a rarity, right? Even though people do, most folks are, are, are younger, um, who are going vegan, who are interested in it. And also because of environmental reasons, mm-hmm. we didn't have, I think the um, most of us were not aware of the effects between climate change and diet and factory farming until more recently. You're right. Yeah. yeah. And so that is a big driver now. Right, right, right. Right, and, and rightfully so. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, while 8% is, is much larger than 3%, it's still a small number. Um, and But I'm, I'm glad to see that it's growing, you yeah. know. Yeah, for sure. And so what do you do to kind of begin that conversation, mm-hmm. you know, introduce it to, even if it's not a young black woman, just mm-hmm. a black woman. Maybe it's another woman in her 50s, you know. That's right. Maybe it's like your mom. Like I am now. <laughs> You admit it, but you I'm telling you, like, if you told me you were 35, I'd be like, no question about well, it. Well, we can where my work is done. Leave. But how do you begin the, that conversation? I, you know what? I'm, I try to meet folks where I just have a conversation, meet folks where they are. Right. So I um, because it's my profession, I'm just asking folks, are you interested in eating more plant based foods? No, are you interested in eating healthier and being healthier? 
here is what you can do. Right, right. Right? Because nobody wants to be unhealthy. I have yet to meet a mom who wants to raise unhealthy children. I mean, you just, you know what I mean? Yeah. They just, there are, there are just lots of reasons why they're not doing it. And so I just want to know what those reasons are and say, you know, well, based on that, here is what I have to suggest based on my experience teaching this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So is it um, that we find out what's available in your community? Is it that we find out um, what's available at, at your kid's school? Is it that we find out, you know, how we can carve out more time for you to cook? Right. Is it um, that you need more recipes? Is it that you have no... Uh, that you had no idea that food was related to, um, you know, certain chronic diseases. So we so we talk about information. I mean, we talk about where you can read more about this or, or watch videos about this or documentaries, read books. So, you know, there are different approaches. Um, and I've, I've taken all of these approaches to helping people in the last 30 years. You know, I was really self-righteous and an evangelist when I, I mean, I still am an evangelist, but <laughs> I was really self-righteous when I started and I had to learn that um, everyone may not do this. Right. And there are things that I do that, um, you know, I, I could, there are things that I could improve and be better at and um, there are levels to veganism as well. Some right. people eat healthier than others. For sure. And you just have to, I don't know. Over time, I just realized that, you know, um, I can do what I can and then let the rest go. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I know that if you get in somebody's face and you really, you know, thump it at them, you know, they're going to they're probably going to shut you down. Yeah. You know, they're going to miss the point because they're going to be like "Mm, too aggressive. Don't want any part of that. You know, right? exactly. So mellow out over time. I think another important thing here, and I think that this is actually kind of also at the heart of your program is, is tapping into the why. Yes. You know, why of that? And I think really – That's people, the foundation. Right. People can come up with like everybody's why is going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But at the base of that why is always love, love of yourself, mm-hmm. love of your family. And if you tap mm-hmm. into that, just like you're saying, you don't know of any mother who doesn't want their children to be healthy. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful why. It's a powerful why. Why is the foundation. You must be strong in your why because when you make your transition, there are going to be so many obstacles. You're going to take two steps forward, one step back. But if you, have, if you know, if you're solid in why you're doing it, you can get there. You just keep going. You know, you just keep going. But it's interesting. I, I agree that it's about self-love um, and uh, self-liberation. But the what I don't – and so I do say that, and I actually write about that in Ageless Vegan as one of the steps to transition is to know that you're worth it. Mm. But it doesn't mean that if you don't do it, you don't have self-worth, right? For and sure. you don't have self-love. It just means that if there is an inkling in you to do it when folks around you are not doing it, listen to that because you are worth that. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I agree. Um, I can't wrap this up without talking about uh, this program here. So we did the soft launch. You did the soft launch here starting this month in February. How's it been going so far? It's been going great. We've been at it for about a week and a half, and we already have 1,300 people who have signed up, which is fabulous. So. 
Yeah, so the official, so we soft launched it um, last week. The official launch will be in May because um, that's when the book, By Any Greens Necessary, came out 10 years ago. Um, so just commemorative of that. And also it gives us a window of, of a few months to get 10,000 folks to sign up. So folks, sign up. <laughs> <laughs> And share it. Share yes, it with your friends. Share it, share it with, with your family. It's a, it's a pretty cool program. And a 21-day program, what all is in there? Right. So what's going to happen is starting in May, we're going to have live online 21-day fresh starts. So basically, we're going to go vegan together for 21 days. So folks are going to – so the, the first week will all be preparation. And then the uh, second and third weeks, the, the, the next 14 days, they will have a meal plan done for you, grocery shopping list, vegan recipes, nutrition tips, and it will be a download PDF. And, we'll be, and I'll have cooking videos that we'll be sharing um, on our um, Facebook group page. I'll have Q&A sessions um, with everybody who signed up. So whether we have 5,000, 10,000, or, you know, 20,000, we're it, all going to do it yeah. together. And it'll and that will happen every 21 days through the end of the year. So my And it's the same program. So even if you've done it in May, you can do it again in June. You can keep going with us, and we're just going to be bringing more and more people on board to do it. And, um, you know, the goal is just as a, as a, as a community of folks to just go vegan together and, and try to get as many people to try it and do it. Right, right. For as long, you know, as much as possible. If money's tight, is this it's the program? It's free. Okay. It's absolutely free. Right, right. And yes. so the grocery shopping list and like all of that, mm -hmm. like a lot of people think, oh, vegan diet, man, I'm going to be spending all my paycheck and then oh, some. Oh, yes. Thank you, Chuck. It's so all of the, there is no processed food in this. So you, so you will be using whole grains that you can get in bulk. You will be using um, whole grain ingredients to make all of these recipes. Mm -hmm. So it will be much cheaper than uh, getting processed food. Good. Yeah. Good. But, you know, I, I mean, you are going to be spending money on groceries and you're going to be getting fresh fruit or, or fresh fruits and vegetables or frozen. Um, and if you're able to make the investment um, in the time and your health and, you know, the cooking of it, it will be well worth it. And that's that's an important part, though, because if you do make a slight more investment in the food that you're eating, you might see your medical bills come that's down. That's exactly right. And so it's it's going mm -hmm. to kind of cancel each other out, or you actually might wind up a little bit more ahead down the line. Right. A point that I want to raise is that um, Lee Crosby and I, you know her from upstairs, one mm -hmm. of our, our nutritionists, yeah. she and I went downstairs to the boutique grocery store in this building, uh -huh. and we were able to load up a full grocery cart. Enough for two people to eat for an entire week oh. for $44 and change. Really? Yes. That's fantastic. Yes. That's yes. Fa so was it like you were getting grains and oh, beans? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, I mean, yeah. like uh, like you were saying, like mm -hmm. things in bulk, you know? Yeah. Um, and then uh, canned goods, frozen things, yep. which also keep the cost down. Absolutely. Um, but then, you and know. And they're still fine. Right. Yeah. And, and then also things that people still love, you know, oatmeal, peanut butter, yeah. staples like that, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so you're not going to go hungry. And this is good food. It's not like you're going to be eating grass. No. It's really. Listen, we wouldn't be doing this if it didn't taste good. Fantastic. Right? Testify. <laughs> it's got to be good. Yes, so, yes, we're going to have some delicious recipes. All the recipes will be based from my two books. And, yeah, it will be, it will be really good eating. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I, I, that's such an important point for, you know, uh, just to get out there. I, I love to be able 
to tell people that you can do this without breaking the bank. And whether yes. you know you're 50 and struggling to eat and make ends meet, or you're a college student and you don't have two pennies to pinch together mm-hmm. right now, you can still absolutely 100% do this yes. and make it work. You can absolutely do it, and we're very and we're we're about making it affordable, delicious, and convenient. There you go. Mm-hmm. Hold on. I can't let you go real quick. Do you have a favorite recipe that's part of this program? Ah, uh, we don't. We don't have to say the ingredients. Recipe. I know it's They're always t- a tough question, right? It okay, sounds I'm so simple. Give you two. Okay, the, the very first one is the pecan pie, but it's a dessert. Get it? <laughs> the pecan pie, the or the chocolate dream pie. Um, but food, food, I would say probably the. Um, Spicy basil eggplant dish is one of my favorites. It has basil and, and dates and cashews, almond butter sauce um, over brown rice. It's fabulous. Hold up. Mm-hmm. Run that one by me one more time, please. Space, spicy basil eggplant. Mm-hmm. That is probably my favorite. And it only takes like 15 minutes. It's super easy, but so delicious. Tracy. Yeah. You're making my mouth water. Yeah, I should have brought you some. I know. You time. should have, right? <laughs> That is awfully inconsiderate that of you. Is. Next time, you have to have me back. I'll bring you something. Oh, I you promise. got it. You got a deal. Um, I, I seriously would love to have you back and, and at least get an update on how yeah. uh, how things are going. Uh, so we're at thirteen hundred at the moment, um, but I think this thing is going to take off. You know, just I like a too. rocket. Like I this too. is such a Thank such you. a cool cool thing. Uh, the website, if people want to get involved, what is it? Ten thousand blackveganwomen.com. The number ten thousand blackveganwomen.com. All right, so I'm. I'm going to put that out on all of my social media. I know it's all over yours already, uh, but we're going to get that out there. We're going to get you up to uh, 10,000. That's just phenomenal. Thank I you. think that this is such a such a great concept. Thank you so very much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Always a pleasure. I'm not going to lie to you. At some point during that conversation, Actually, at a couple of points, I became uncomfortable. Some of the things, they're just hard to hear. And maybe it was the terminology. I I don't know. But after we wrapped up our discussion, I remember turning to Tracy and saying, well, this is how I saw some things that you were saying through my eyes. All right. This is my point of view. And just as I had never looked at the situation through her eyes, she also said that she never saw it that way from my point of view. And I tried really hard to have this be as open of a dialogue as possible. And I feel like I learned a lot. And she did too. And this is me speaking personally here, okay? This is Chuck Carroll. This isn't Chuck Carroll from the Physicians Committee. It's just me. These conversations are so very, very important because if we truly want to make the world a healthier place, a better place for everyone, conversations like this are a great place to start. They need to be had, though, with civility, with humility, and with infinite respect because that is how you come together. Again, if you want to get involved with the 10,000 Black Vegan Women campaign, just head over to 10,000blackveganwomen.com. That's 10,000 as in the number one, followed by four zeros. 
Now up there, you will see that the two-day weekend vegan jumpstart is already up and running, and the full three-week course that she was talking about begins in May. So be one of the 10,000, make a change in your life, and then encourage someone else to do the same. Let's turn now to a man who has also made a big change in his life, Cortland Malloy. Here in the nation's capital, he is a well-tenured and well-known columnist for the Washington Post. And recently, he's been on a heck of a health journey of his own. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Cortland was feeling old, like really old beyond his years. And that feeling became cemented when he saw a video of himself walking. He was shuffling around like an old man. And so now he's on a journey to clean up his health. And he's sharing that journey with millions of readers in the Washington Post. And he's also sharing it with us today. But here's the thing about Cortland, right? One of the headlines in his columns was, Broccoli made me gag. He's going to talk about that. It turns out that the man was traumatized by vegetables at a young age. So really no fond memories there of hardly anything green. So his first step, his first step to no longer walking like a 90-year-old man, that's to get past that trauma. And then he could keep on strolling all his way to a healthier life. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Story time here on the show. This is my favorite part of the exam room is when we can bring extraordinary people in to talk about the extraordinary things that they have done. And we are going to do just that with two extraordinary people today. I'm sitting across the table from exam room guest and friend of the show, Ms. Gwen Whitaker from Green Fair Restaurant and Cafe out in Reston. How you doing, Gwen? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for being here. And for the first time making his debut on the show is a gentleman whose columns I have been reading for ever in a day. And it is a real privilege to have you here, Mr. Cortland Malloy from the Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chuck. My pleasure. Uh, you guys, uh, first of all, Cortland, I don't know if you realize how much Gwen chats you up when you're not around. I mean, she has been telling me you have to have Cortland on the show for, I mean, it has to be about six, seven months at this point. She's, she is like your biggest advocate right there, just to your right. Did you know that? Well, what I know, it's probably more important that um, as a result of meeting Gwen and going to the Green Fair organic cafe that she owns um, it changed my life and um, quality of life is much better when I met her I was at least 50 pounds heavier Mm -hmm. than I was I could not you know when you get in the car you have to lift that left leg out to get out oh yes sir well that left leg was hard to move Uh and um, going upstairs she claims that I walked like a walking dead man when I, I never said that. She didn't put it like that but um i looked i saw a photo of you know video cam walking and mm-hmm. you know it was um it was like an old man i mean a really old man 
and that's gotten better too. Well, we'll get into that in just a second. Gwen, uh, lean a little bit closer into that microphone and tell me how it was that you first linked up with Cortland. Was it just by reading his columns or was this just a matter of happenstance or what happened there? So, so Cortland's an institution in the D.C. area and the Washington Post. I'd read his column for decades, a lot of social uh, uh, aspects, I think, that he brought to the forefront. And he wrote a column about how broccoli made him gag. <laughs> and so it made me laugh. And then I thought, well, I should invite him out. And so I, I called him up and uh, fortunately actually picked up the phone and, and talked with me. And when we ended up having dinner together, we really resonated. And a, a lot of s- stories came to the forefront. And I invited him to come out and actually go through the kickstart. So it took, what, a year, I think, to get – so he did one column, I think, about Green Fair uh, and our Kickstart program where he sort of sat on the side and watched people go through it. And then about a year later, he decided to go through it himself. And so that was kind of cool, not sitting on the side, but actually joining the table and getting on the scale and going through the program, taking the food home. And we did a little bit of an accelerated program with Cortland, too, which was the whole Dean Ornish concept of uh, doing we, – we did a lot of the metrics with a, a doctor from the White House, Dr. Rob Darling, where we did carotid artery and VO2 testing and informed body fitness. So it was a lot of medical testing. So we had like a before and after and then we started doing the meditation classes together, and we started exercising, which was good for me because I had not been lifting weights before, so we started lifting weights and running. And I had a group of people from Green Fair, Pericles Silva, the operations manager, mm-hmm. and Jen Graydon, our baker, and we would get together a couple times a week, and um, it was the whole concept of really cha- a life change, not just the food but the community and the social aspects and the, the exercise. It was a whole mindset. Yes. Your community proved to be very important for me. But I was also chronicling, you know, th- this journey mm-hmm. in, in the newspaper, the Washington Post, where I'd been a columnist for many years. And I found that there was a really good response. You know, people are really wanting to, you know, eat better, wanting to learn how you get started. And um, this was a result of, you know, my meeting Gwen. Well, it's a result of you writing this column that broccoli made you gag. I mean, what, was this just raw broccoli? I'm curious. What about the broccoli didn't sit well with you that just day? Just seeing the word broccoli. Wow. <laughs> the taste. No, I I was, like I said, I I wanted to change the way I was eating. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, like being an old guy um, because I'm not really an old guy. Yeah. And, and I started doing research on what – you know, what were the good foods? And broccoli was always near or at the top of the list. Um, but I had a gag reflex that going back to childhood, you know, broccoli and asparagus coming in these oily cans, you pour them on your plate, you have to eat them before you can go out to play after mm. dinner. Mm. And it was just a, a horrible experience, and it stayed with me. I tried to eat broccoli before, and it got the same reaction. Whether or not it was from a can at that point? Whether or not it was, you know, it looked wow. like little trees. <laughs> but, um, and I wrote about it. What was a person supposed to do when the healthiest foods out there, and this was pretty much all of the greens, 
um, just didn't sit well. It just would not go down. Wow. And um, I heard people wrote in and gave me so much advice, so many recipes, but they all involved things that I also read was not good for you, like deep frying your, your broccoli or slathering your broccoli in butter and cheese. And I said, well, that can't be the way to right. go. But then I got a call from Gwen and says, I'll tell you what, just come out, I'll show you. Were, were you skeptical at first? Because, I mean, Gwen is very much, uh, she is all in, let's do this thing and let's do it right. Let's do it the healthiest way possible. So, right. I mean, are you an all in kind of a guy? Well, I wasn't before. And it's a very difficult you know, thing to make a change from being a, Fast. I could sit in a McDonald's line, you know, for like days to get that, that burger. So to go from that to being um, a Gwen Whitaker type vegan, which is you know serious business. That is. Uh, but here was the thing. She had a a calmness to to her, um, and a way of presenting that was not preaching. It was not self righteous. It did not play on guilt nor shame mm-hmm. um, that was very intriguing to find out. And this is one of the things I've, I've learned about this new way of eating. The nervous system is affected in a very positive way. And um, especially in times that we're living in now, it's good to be able to find a calmness. You know? And she had it. It was very appealing. So you see the results before you even know what's involved. So, you know, after a while, it becomes, say, wait a minute, this might work. Gwen, what, what, what was it about this column that that's really kind of struck with you? Is it just a genuine drive to want to help? Because that's what, you know, in getting to know you these last couple of years, like that is something that is very clear to me. Is like you feel like you are here and you are here to help people. And so you read this column from a gentleman who says broccoli makes me gag. You want to help him eat that broccoli. Is that why you reached out? Uh, you know, it never was about getting him to eat the broccoli because it was more the empathy of I feel the same way about green peas. I grew up with green peas from a can. Oh, a new and it was, Okay. <laughs> it was the whole tactile thing of you put a pea in your mouth and it has this popping thing. And so I avoided probably into my 30s and 40s of I would be the one that would pick the peas out of the pot pies or I, and I, I just couldn't eat the peas. And so I think that was our first discussion was around the empathy aspect of I grew up with peas in a way that was really unappetizing. And now I eat peas with relish right. and I, I, you know, there, there's something that I enjoy. Um, and so it was, how do you get past some of these childhood things as an adult and it's not trying to push people it was more you know if you don't like broccoli set that aside and look at all the other things that you get from that and I think uh, the the dish that Cortland settled on was the creamy potatoes and kale Mm -hmm. and it had a creaminess to it that Mm -hmm. was um, that he related to and the kale was sort of embedded in it so it didn't stand out and so, you know, whenever we serve that at Green Fair now, we say this is Cortland Malloy's favorite dish, and it's part of our Kickstart program is one of the meals. Yeah. That sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah. That yeah. sounds pretty good. <laughs> it's really good. Um, all right. So let's let's talk about this. So you link up with Gwen at this point, Cortland, and you mentioned, like, having to physically pull your leg up out of the car to move. Like, you're just 
your mobility isn't what it should be at that point. What was your weight? You said that you have lost 50 pounds, but yeah, where yeah. were you at that point? Yeah, I was close to 260 okay. at the time. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, I, was, I said, I'm not going to buy a larger you know, pair of pants. Um, I bought, when I was trying to do this on my own, I bought a pair of pants that was a size to a, little, a really great pair of pants. You know, okay. Expensive, thing, but just one size too small. I said, I will work my way into this. Uh-huh. Um, but as soon as I tried on my own to do the traditional kind of diet, I'm going to do a diet myself and things like that, something in me began to fight back so hard, you know, that I ended up going up a pair of pants. And then I doubled down and said, I'm going to beat this thing. And ended up going up another size to the point that my my excellent pair of pants, I was about to throw them away. I was just about to throw them away, uh, giving up when the uh, broccoli column. The broccoli column was the last straw. <laughs> I plead for help. And, okay. um, you know, what do they say? When the student is really, really ready, uh-huh. you know, the teacher will appear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so true. You were you were ready for change. Yeah, and that's it was. So, I, I felt that if I didn't, I had just given up. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and there was no return. Yeah, my willpower was exhausted. Yeah, you know. I got man. I I hear you one hundred percent. I know that feeling so well. And it's funny when that switch gets flipped. It's for whatever reason, like you just know it's going to be different this time. You just know. You, you've tried so many times in the past to diet, and yeah, you lose some weight. You feel great for a minute, but then it comes pouring back on, and you feel worse than ever. But you just know when that switch gets flipped, and you're finally ready to do it. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, Gwen mentioned that you underwent a battery of tests as you're getting ready to go. What did those find? Were you, did you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, anything like that? Uh, let me be short because there's a lot of technical. Dr. Darling is very good and yeah. they brought out new equipment that I'd never heard of before. <clears throat> the bottom line was that I had, I'm 68, and basically I had the internal body, the internal cardiovascular system of an 80-year-old man. And a lot of that, I'm sure, was from dairy, Mm -hmm. because that was the thing, creamy dairy food, eggnog. I could just take a quart and just down it like it was a glass of water. That was your vice, huh? Well, that was one of them. (laughs) Um, But it had taken a toll over time. These were, let's say, comfort foods. Sure. You know, um, things that I would instantly automatically, without even thinking about it, put in my mouth. Right. You know? And it was always amazing to me that, um, you know, what the food addiction w- w- would do to me, it make me feel good, From it seemed, from the inside, and only until I started doing these internal tests. Right. You know, how, how well I was breathing, how well my heart was functioning, whether my, you know, arteries were really delivering the oxygen and nutrients that it should have been and found out it wasn't, mm. you know, which says that and these things began to change. I still have to do my upgrade test, but I can tell things have changed. My cholesterol went down. My blood pressure went down. Uh, I didn't have to take statins, although there are people still arguing, oh, man, you got to take the statin. But um, it just changes everything inside. 
And my temper got better, too. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Uh, so I just want to ask you, like, what was the emotion that hit when the doctor's like, man, you have the cardiovascular system of somebody who's a, more than a decade older than you are, 80. Yeah. Like, that must have hit you like a ton of bricks. It almost did. But before the full weight came down on me, the realization... Um, my my friends stepped in, including Gwen and the other people who were you know I was you know working with then, and really highlighted the good news that once you find out, you know it's a good you know you're blessed in a way because you know you can do something about it. Mm. You know um, the denial that everything is going that gets removed. Um, but when you find out that something needs to be fixed, you don't say, oh, my goodness, it's broken. You go about, you know, getting it done. And it happens that health, you know, the body, there's so much about it that can be changed and fixed. Um, even, even age, it seems, can be, you know, the consequences of age can be reversed through uh, diet. And this was as good a news as that other thing was bad news. Oh man! All Damn. right. So this was this was a good day for you then. Yeah. All right. Thanks to help. <clears throat> I don't. I can't imagine people going to a doctor and finding out, you know, that their insides are, you know, twenty years older than they they are. Right. And feeling good about it, unless they have somebody to say, "But we can fix this." Right. You, know, you can fix it, and you don't have to go and you know and feel morose for the rest of your life. Gwen, I'm sure you shared the same optimism when those numbers came in. Yeah, I think what I continue to be surprised by is not only that people can make this change and get better, but how quickly that can actually happen if they're doing it the right way. Yeah. And I think the thing that I always like to emphasize is it's it's not this concept of going vegan and getting on to the processed food going from one diet to processed food diet but when they take out things that cause harm the body responds so quickly i mean we watch uh, we had one man who had been asthmatic since he was two years old Mm -hmm. uh decades later go through the kickstart and the first week that he was on a plant-based diet that was organic without uh, salt oil and sugar he said this is the first time i can breathe again and so whether it's days or a week or three weeks, most of the chronic illnesses that we see people plagued by can be reversed really quickly. And that's the great news is that if you can show people how to do it and help them get through that uh, inertia of how they've always done things and how their friends do things to a point where they're feeling dramatically better, then there's this huge momentum in a direction of wanting to stay that way, and if you deviate, how to get get back on track as quickly as possible. How quickly did you start to feel better? It, it was phenomenal. The um, Let's say at the end of the day I would grab a you know, bucket of ice cream. Mm-hmm. The impact, the, the positive effects were near instantaneous. You know, you, well, you, you could eat until it did, you know, uh, make you feel, get that good comfort feeling. Eating right proved to be not that fast at first, but it proved faster than the withdrawal symptoms had a chance to really set in. It was that fast. Right. You know, sometimes you stop eating 
the food you like, and it really messes you up emotionally, physically. You go through that withdrawal. And oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, you that that was yeah. part of your story too, and it was huge a very part of it. Huge part of it. Withdrawal. Like I don't think that a lot of people recognize that when you are a food addict and you've been eating these high fat foods for so long that are just loaded with sodium and all sorts of nonsense that you really shouldn't be eating so much of your body physically becomes dependent on it you know or at the very least your brain becomes super dependent on it and to the point where if you don't get it like you start to freak out that's right you know uh, for me i got angry and then i got depressed and then i got angry and then i started to feel physically ill was that Mm -hmm. similar that was it yeah and um but taking that out putting in the good stuff um the effects were faster than the mind wanting to put a fist through a wall type thing. Right. You know, the, um, uh, it was good. And the thing that still amazes me is when we talk about feeling better, um, we really don't know what feeling better is until you feel it. Yeah. It's very hard to define um, because when I started feeling better, I said, wait a minute, where did that good feeling come from? I had not felt like that before. Um, there's a lightness to it. Um, things about the stomach that you go to bed on, you know, full and all of that stuff, and you don't realize, you know, the weight that you're really carrying, mm-hmm. the weight on the body processes. All that goes away, and you're left with this this feeling of being alive in a way that you never felt. To the point that if I had continued eating the way I was and died as a result— I would not have known what actually living had been all about. There you, you know, go. It's that big of a deal, and it happens so fast. Man. You know, I mean, in a matter of days, just yeah. three days. Boom. Just like mm-hmm. That's a profound statement. I would not have known what living was all about. That's, that's mm-hmm. huge. That mm-hmm. should be on a T-shirt. That should be on a bumper sticker. Heck, you should register that domain and just yeah, start no, blogging we, on it. No, she taught me to jump. You don't hoard. <laughs> <laughs> Put it out there. Put it out there. Mm-hmm. Man, that's great. Okay, so you're feeling good. You're feeling great. I mean, let's let's get real with this. Uh, you know, a lot of people who even experience this this rapid change over time, it can still be a little bit difficult at points to maintain this new lifestyle. Yeah. Have there been any obstacles there oh, for you? Oh yes. I mean, there there are all kind of temptations and things, but it was Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, the family was around. Everybody's happy, you know. I could look at the bird on the table and know that I wasn't going to eat that. Right. You know, it looked like a something only a real carnivore would like want to tear into. Well, it looked like a bird, mm-hmm. a living thing. Um, but there were other things on the table that um, looked really good, like macaroni and cheese <laughs> and it kept moving around and you know how people are you have some mm-hmm. have some that you know your elders come and come on you know they want you to eat and it's almost become so wrapped into the ritual that it becomes not just a matter of eating it me- it becomes a matter of receiving grace you know you're sharing you're breaking right bread. right and i was not prepared to deal with that particular feeling mm. and Next thing I know, I'm eating the macaroni and cheese. Okay. And it's really good. It's really good. Um, I also tried, on another occasion, a 
impossible burger, at least the taste of it, because there was just so much, oh, look at this new, you know, vegan thing. It's not meat. You should try it. It's really good. You can't tell the difference. And curiosity got the best of me, and I tried it, and I wondered. It's like when you go back to smoking a cigarette, and it doesn't taste like it used to mm-hmm. before. You wonder, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was the thing. With the macaroni and cheese, it tasted really good. Um, no problem until that night. I started feeling the effects, okay. and it was like terrible. It was like I'd eaten, you know, some concrete, and it was starting to rock up in my stomach or something like that. Uh oh. So, but those are good things to to have to realize, you know, what you're doing to yourself in those kind of terms, stark terms. It's good, and I haven't had that problem. Plus, I've sort of been more prepared for how do you deal with the the social pressures right. of just being the traditions, you know, in which food plays just an incredible part. My grand, you know, son is staying with us right now, and his mom, you know, to get him to do right, you know, there's all these little, you know, food rewards, you know, and um, I want to say stop doing that. Don't yeah. give that boy candy for doing his homework yeah. or doing, you know. Yeah. But, you know, there's work ahead. Sure, sure. Um, how... I want to go back to the food addiction thing. Mm-hmm. Um, were you worried at all when you took that bite of macaroni and cheese? Like, oh, man, the wheels are coming off now. Like, it, every, I'm just, all this progress is going to unravel. Yeah, the next, excuse me. Yeah. I get, when I get nervous, I nope. know, this is a terrible thing. I feel like I'm in confession. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, yeah, no, there's guilt. I'm from, I'm from deep south, and, you know, and, um. You know, there's a part of making this change and cutting out things that, um, if not for Gwen and people who are caring and soothing, would make me feel like I was part of the temperance society and that if I strayed, um, you know, my chances of going to heaven would be in jeopardy. Uh, So, yeah, I felt guilty about it. I felt weak. You know, I felt that... um, um, I was betraying not just myself, but the people who were part of the group. And this is not a bad thing. Right. Um, I'll take any anything that it takes to get back on track, and that's what I found. That and also the negative consequences, the mm. negative physical consequences was enough to kind of get back on track. Um, it, um, we talked when, you know, when I was going through the kickstart program which was like a way to wean mm-hmm. off it's a very gentle program even though you make big changes but there was um a story about a guy who had you know made great progress and decided to eat a cheeseburger whole cheeseburger and the other stuff that goes with the fast food and end up being hospitalized wow you know because of the negative reaction to it um so. Were you worried, like, the, the I guess the psychological or the uh, physical addiction component would just fire right back up, like a smoker who thinks that they have it and they yeah, light up no. after a couple years? No. Okay. I have been a smoker, and I tried many times to stop right? Uh, until I stopped. And so I brought that to it. You don't stop until you stop. Right. You stay stop, and you can do it one day at a time. Right, right, right. right. Um, so, yeah, and I understand the concept of slipping, relapsing, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. There's only one thing to do about it. Either keep doing it or stop again. Right. You know? um, 
And again, the negative consequences. If there had not been negative consequences, I don't know, it might have been different. Sure. Different. If I had been doing this on my own, you know. And if I did not have hope that um, there were things you could do, um, I mean, if it had persisted, I mean, this was one time, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't know what to do. Call up. <laughs> the guru over here. Guru. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the other thing that was really important, and I would never have associated this with a change of lifestyle, was um, uh, the meditation. Gwen decided, I don't know where it came from, she'll tell, but um, we went to a meditation class, and it wasn't a big thing, just, um, you know, somebody speaking softly, so saying, you know, giving us some, some words, check and change, check it, your attitude, change it, uh, something to hold on to. That was a big deal. Meditation is, um, well, I won't say greatly underestimated, but when it comes to change in behavior, oh, it can make things so much easier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that you confessed your sins, quote unquote, um, because I think that people who who have these same slip-ups, they share that same feeling of guilt. Mm-hmm. But I also know that in today's age of social media, you know, people put themselves up on this holier-than-thou pedestal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you just build up this shame inside of you. This guilt just kind of eats alive at you. And, and I worry that if somebody isn't perfect on their diet and they have that occasional slip-up, that then they're just going to throw in the towel and go right back to where they were. But I think that the majority, the vast majority of people, honestly, are people who have these occasional slips. But they shouldn't be villainized because of it. Yes. And also the feelings, the temptations. Um, I can walk into a grocery store now, and if there's eggnog out, I will have a physical reaction. I will look at it. I'm like, why am I staring at this thing? And I start, you start feeling bad about, about that. Um, the whole idea of not eating meat, not eating dairy, you know, eating healthier um, is in itself an act of caring. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you care for the world that you live in. You know, you care for yourself um, and you care for other people because, as Gwen showed, this is not an individual sport. Right. We do this as a community. And that, you know, moderates some of these hard feelings. It's yeah. hard to be, to stay hard on yourself when you're in a community of people who care uh, about you. And it changes the nervous system. You don't get, um, you don't judge too quickly, too harshly. Yeah. You know, you can have, you give yourself a little more time, mm-hmm. you know, and um, you say, okay, mm-hmm. you know, and you move back. You know, it requires just not picking up that fork full of macaroni and cheese again. For sure. But you'll always, I've, I'm still not to the point, this has been a year, and I'm not to a point where I don't, you know, feel temptations. Oh, yeah. Know. I'm not sure that the temptations will ever completely go away. I think that it's, it's a fleeting thing. I'm an ex-smoker, too, and I haven't had a cigarette for years and years, but just out of nowhere from time to time, I'll just get a hankering for a cigarette, and then it's kind of like, psh, slap yourself. You're like, what are you thinking? Like, that's, you know, the worst idea in the history of ideas. <laughs> and, uh, and then just as quickly as it came, it, it passes again. I think that, you know, that, I think, is kind of always going to be there. You just know how to manage it a little bit better. 
let's let's spread that wisdom on a little bit thicker here, Cortland, um, because it sounds like you mentioned that y- your grandson is is you know uh, being bribed with treats, you know, not necessarily the healthiest thing. So from that, I kind of surmise that you're in your family, at least, kind of on this journey by yourself. Are you, you the only one that's gone plant based? Yes, I am. Um, but people, it, it, this is it's so interesting. If I had tried to make people or do some proselytizing, which would be my, you know, as a newspaper columnist, that's what I'd like to preach, um, it wouldn't work. <laughs> However, the power of example is a lot, you know, more intense than I, I realize. So people see some changes. And they, when people see you trying to change, so there's no meat, don't eat, there's no meat being, being, being cooked. I never, I've not seen any, um, no eggs being cooked. Okay. I mean, it's not like I'm there hoovering over the stove sure. to see what's going on. Sure. And um, um, when people go to the grocery stores, I noticed that the beans are back and there's the kale. No broccoli yet, but um, there's kale. So there you, this is such an amazing thing. When, when people see you trying to improve, when people see um, the improvements, um, there's a power of, of attraction there. And yeah. like I was saying, when I talked to Gwen, even without knowing what this idea she had in mind, I could tell that there was something different here. You know, this was a presentation, a persona. Even on the telephone, you can tell, you know, this is a, this is a nice person. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, and then uh, let me go and check it out. Uh, although at first, um, I'll admit, I did not check it out at first because... Broccoli. Broccoli. Because broccoli. broccoli. <laughs> There's broccoli. There's broccoli. Um, but I have tried broccoli since. Gotcha. Yeah, I've been able to get it down. Okay. So okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Still not your favorite not thing? Not my favorite thing, but, um, you know, you can mash it up really fine and, and cover it up in things. Okay. Hey, here's the most important part about this journey. You know, sugar is my thing. Okay. You know, sugar. But there are substitutes that taste as good. It is amazing how many things we eat we like that are not healthy mm-hmm. that we can make to taste pretty much the same way that are healthy. Yeah. You know, I yeah. learned that at Green Fair with oh, Glenn yeah. too. Yeah. They have desserts and oh, stuff. Over their there. desserts are all planet over there. All planet. I know. I mean, my goodness. Uh, we we went out there a couple months ago, uh brought a former Redskin with me and, and Rick Snyder. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, the dessert that was served, it was it was this pumpkin bar thing. Pumpkin I mean, it was just mm-hmm. the greatest thing I had ever tasted in my entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even ask what's in it. No, <laughs> well, I, you might find that it's dates or something. And <laughs> oh well, that that just excites me now. Like I, I love the creativity behind this diet and like how you actually replicate those flavors that right. you've grown to love so much and mm-hmm. do so in a healthful fashion. That takes a lot of talent, mm-hmm. a lot of talent. But it can be done. I mean, I've learned the recipe for nice cream, N I C E cream from Grin, where you can make your make um, uh, something that tastes even better than ice cream. Oh yeah, that's healthy for you. Frozen bananas and what do you throw in there? Mm-hmm. Do I give the, the Vanilla, secret ingredient? <laughs> is this Cortland's secret recipe? <laughs> no, this is Gwen's recipe. Okay, okay. But, um, yeah, this look the, and the empathy. The, the, I don't know when you're telling people what's good for them to eat. There's kind of a natural kind of pushback. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but we're dealing with something that can heal you or kill you, right? And there's always a temptation to say, let's go with the healing stuff, the food. There are, there are foods out here that will make your life so much better oh, yeah. than what we're being pushed. But it's really hard to do. So I've tried to be a little more empathetic. Um, in the African-American community, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, the, the death rates, the premature mortality rates from these diseases are just, it's, it's, it's almost obscene yeah. in a country like this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how do you, get, how do you do something about it? What can you do? Uh, about that and I wrangle with that yeah you know without being judgmental right you know uh, and I think that is one of the benefits of having done th- done this or doing this is I recognize how hard it can be but how rewarding it can be for sure you know um, I, I you know th- think about that often I've, I've wanted to do a show on that and and I think that I mean that's that's a situation that needs to be addressed immediately. I mean, you, you look at not just the obesity rates, but I'm, I'm sure that you've seen the charts that show the, the rate of colorectal cancer oh, in yes. the district broken mm-hmm. apart by wards. You know, that's right. in various parts of the city. Mm-hmm. And your more affluent ones are, you know, very low. But then you look at your underprivileged wards, your mm-hmm. ward eight, and it is just through the mm-hmm. roof. That's right. It is unbelievable, mm-hmm. the disparity. There's something – the there's been an effort to bring – fresh fruits and vegetables into corner stores into what is called the food desert. There are places with a lot of people but no real grocery stores. Mm-hmm. So to give people at least access to healthy foods, they put them in, in corner stores. And what they found, that if you package, say, a fruit cup um, in a colorful way, in the same way that candy bar people do, you know, the sugary snack foods, you know, they present them well, and you put them close together, the candy and the well-packaged fruit cup, kids will choose the fruit cup mm. and be perfectly satisfied with it. So it's not like people don't want to eat healthy. But if you present right and um, make them feel they have a choice, um, they will choose make the right choices. Yeah. You know, and Certainly when a kid will choose a fruit cup, over a candy bar, that's a big thing because the fact is we know that the fruit is not just better for you. It really tastes better, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, yeah. Nice mixed fruit stuff. Yeah. Cortland had an article about the d- disparity between two zip codes mm. where there was a 10-year life difference yeah. between one area that was co-resident to another area based on the food deserts, yeah. the Income, so probably education and access to health care and healthy foods. Yes. But it was just the that stark impact of you could live so close mm-hmm. and be so far away from mm-hmm. a uh, health perspective mm-hmm. of actually losing life because of where you live. Yeah. This, this what we talk about the income gap, the yeah. wealth gap, and things like that. It is, um, it has profound impact. But what, what is really striking is that among our wealthiest you know people and th- there's so much what so so much that gets tossed out yeah you know that good pair of pants that, that i had that i was you know it ended up being given to um a, a homeless shelter and things like that and when i went to take these clothes there i saw all these 
these poor people wearing these really nice clothes <laughs> that wealthy people had, had donated. Sure. Um, but there was also this food thing that gets, you know, tossed out. So you can take, you can go to, to restaurants and get enough throwaway food to give healthy food to every poor person around. It's just, it makes no sense. Instead of just throwing things away, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not just that we have this huge income gap. It's what we put value on, you know. I mean, we have more than enough to feed everybody. Sure. There should not be any uh, food insecurities. There should not be any hunger. And there should not be any reason that people can't have access to the kind of foods that we're talking about. I want to end with this because this is a fascinating topic, and I, I think this will be revisited down the line on the show, undoubtedly. But we're talking about the disparity. Have you noticed any changes as far as food deserts and, and availability of healthy food as the city's undergone so much gentrification in recent years? Yes, you know the uh, wealthy people aren't all you know un- uncaring. Right, you know, people want to help and. To make changes in the, this kind of society, you need people with resources, and there are efforts mostly aimed at young young people. So in schools, we'll find that the candy machines are being taken out, and you know children given healthier choices. And I think one one of the people who was, was involved in um, bringing healthier foods into the schools uh, found that cooking lessons work, and this whole seed to plate movement, helping people understand where their foods come from. You know, a lot of people didn't know that, you know, could see a slice of tomato in a burger, cheeseburger, and not associate that with a real tomato. Just, you know, didn't know where it came from. Wow. So you show them a tomato and they've never seen it. They don't know what it is, you know, because they've never seen a whole tomato before. So people get to see where our food comes from. And there is a great affinity for gardening you know, I mean, there's something about being close to the earth that takes people back to their roots that's um, quite appealing. But they also found that in teaching people how to cook, that well, the people like that. They like cooking healthy things. They also found, and this was um, particularly but of a particular interest to me, is that they doubled the uh, consumption of broccoli in schools <laughs> by showing kids how to make a... a uh, a healthy Asian sauce. You put it on it, and, it, and it, you know it went up. And what they do is look at see how how much food gets thrown away, mm-hmm. and they notice that fewer and fewer broccolis were being thrown away. So they tracked back and found out that all you do is put some Asian sauce on it, and kids will eat double the amount. I bet. I have not tried that yet, but. <laughs> Baby steps, Cortland. Baby (laughs) baby steps. But, uh, yeah, I think back to the broccoli that was ever served for me at at school lunch, and it it just looked like it had been boiled to death. You know, I mean, wilted beyond wilted. I mean, just probably cooked every last nutrient out of that poor stalk of broccoli. And it's not the most appealing-looking thing in the world. And as you were just saying, presentation is key when it comes to healthy food. Yeah, that slimy broccoli was good for hiding under your plate. It would stick to the bottom of the plate. So people, took your plate, clean plate up to the uh, sink to wash it, it would just slip on down the train. Let's, uh, let's wrap up. So what's, what's next on your, your journey here, Cortland? I mean, you're, you're a year in. Seems like you're 
you kind of hit your stride. You got to get some well, more tests done. We got to well, figure out where you are. Yeah. Well, I can tell that it's good. It's much better. That left leg can lift out of the car. There you go. You know, without you know all that. Oh, oh, oh! I can go up and down stairs. Mm-hmm. I don't stoop as much when I when I walk. Um, and I've been invited to join Gwen, my old my team, my Green Fair team, uh, back to exercise. That is critical. Okay. You know, so to get back on track with that and, and continue to write about it. Do it. And you'll be speaking at the Veg Fest speaking on at the Veg Fest. April 19th. Ah, my man. Yeah, okay. I have a pair of pants that I can um, show that uh, another thigh could do fit it. in the pants. Let's do it, man. We'll do the side by side. You bring yours, I'll bring, bring mine, <laughs> man. And that's like a whole lot of man that's just no longer there. <laughs> no. You want to talk about inspiring, that's it, my man. That's right. I love it. I love it so much. Cortland Malloy, thank you so very much. You, you are a super inspiring individual. Thank you, Chuck. So are you. And Gwen, always a pleasure. Thank uh, you, She's Chuck. the inspiration. I know. For real. She's just the ringleader of health. I love it. <laughs> oh, I love no. It. <laughs> thank you. In the episode notes below, you're going to find some links to a couple of Cortland's columns, including the famed Broccoli Made Me Gag piece. That is definitely worth taking a couple of minutes out of your day to give a quick read. He's such a good writer. And I always enjoy it when someone on the show is open and honest about their slip-ups. Let's face it, we're not all perfect. Very few of us are. We all falter at some point in our life. So I was really pleased with Cortland, how he was able to open up and talk about giving in and having that macaroni and cheese, that regular macaroni and cheese. Maybe you've had a slip up where you've gone back to something, either be a food or a habit or something like that. Think about how your body reacted and think about also how you felt emotionally afterward. You hear Cortland talk about that guilt that he felt. Food is a complicated and it is a complex thing, isn't it? It's physical and it's most assuredly emotional. It's a lot of things rolled into one. And because it's so many things, there are so many questions out there, right? Complicated, complex, so let's get some answers. So if there's something that you're curious about or want to know more about or something that you heard on the show and you want to do a deeper dive go ahead and reach out to us. We would love to try to get you some more information. We'll get you an answer. So tweet us, message us, just get in touch, however it is that you can. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll, WLC. You can find the Physicians Committee at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. Just reach out to us and use the hashtag exam room podcast. And you can also find me on Facebook. I've included a link to that in the episode notes below. Go ahead and send me a message there as well. And we will try to get to as many of your questions as possible on future episodes. And you can also let us know about any ideas that you have for a full on topic for the show always love to hear from you guys. You guys drive the content of this show. So keep those ideas coming. Now, one of the questions that I get all the time is how can I help? It's so cool that you guys want to pay things forward. So cool that you want to share what you're learning here. And one of the easiest ways you can do that, one of the easiest ways to help is just by sharing the show on Facebook or tweeting about it. Or you can do the really, 
really easy thing and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, really wherever shows are available, and then leave a five-star rating and a nice review as well. Because when you do that, that helps even more people discover the exam room and all of this nutrition education that comes with it. So let's see if we can't help some other people transform their lives as well. So hit that subscribe button, and I promise you it goes a long, long, long way toward helping the next person lead a healthier life. And that's going to do it for us this week. My thanks again to Tracy McWhorter, Cortland Malloy, and Gwen Whitaker for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee... I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based.